Welcome back to Talks on the Catechism of the Catholic Church with David O. Gray. In this talk, I will be highlighting Article 1 of Chapter 1, Section 2, called The Profession of Faith. To supplement your own reading of this chapter, I will briefly explain what the Nicene Constantinople Creed is, how it's structured, and how our profession of faith fits within the body of the liturgy of the Mass. I will then speak on God as Father and um, revelation of God as Trinity. This talk works out of paragraphs numbered 185 through 421 in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. <clears throat> There's a lot in, these, in this section here. In um, these paragraphs, they also treat our, our theology on the original sin. But in these series of talks, I will address the original sin at the opening of my forthcoming talk on the sacrament of baptism. So hold those paragraphs for now, put them in your pocket, and we'll pull them back out later, okay? Um, in society, uh, organizations, schools, um, and corporations would typically, in their formative stages of their work, create some sort of mission statement that succinctly explains who they are and what they believe. Newly formed governments tend to create declarations of rights and constitutions based upon the precepts that many in their group have formed to be the, the um, agreed to be the basic tenets that uh, contributes towards the common good of society. <clears throat> Faith-based religions, on the other hand, have been different in, in this regard. They, they have always sought to express their core beliefs through what are called professions of faith or creeds, as they are called from the first word in Latin, credo, meaning I believe. The creeds that were pronounced at the First Council of Nicaea in 325 AD and the First Council of Constantinople in 381 AD are not the earliest instances of declarative statements uh, by the fathers about the nature, personhood, life, and works of the Triune Godhead. Nor do these creeds um, express all that we Catholics dogmatically believe. But having been drawn out of the authority of the first two ecumenical councils of the church, these creeds have been able to express for nearly two, two millennia the, the common language of the universal church of both the East and the West to succinctly say what it is that makes us who we are as Christians. <clears throat> um, for just a little historical background, the creed of Nicaea ended with the phrase, and in the Holy Spirit. And in the Holy Spirit was the last phrase of that creed. And then the First Council of Constantinople borrowed from the creed first recited by Athanasius, the Salamis, in his 384 Acronatus, to omit nothing from the creed of Nicaea, but to add more to the second person of the Holy Trinity. For example, they added the phrases, according to the Holy Scriptures, the phrase, and the seated at the right hand of the Father, the phrase, in glory, and a phrase, whose kingdom will, um, there will be no end. Most especially, the new thing that was added to the creed was about the life and work of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> in this way, uh, the creed is divided into three sections that, that you have to get. And each section uh, follows the same pattern in which they share the revelation about three things concerning each person in the Holy Trinity. That is, each section of the creed explains these three things. Get these. One, they explain the um, divine person's nature, two, um, their personhood, and three, their life and works. In the following two talks on Jesus, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, we'll also follow the creed using that same construct of those three points, so hold on to those. 
In the instant case, in regards to etern the Eternal Father, the creed begins with the first thing we need to know about God the Father. In fact, this point of revelation is the same thing that the Jews knew about God the Father from the first paragraph of the, their creed or synthesis of their faith called the Shema, which can be found in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. And the Shema says, start, it begins, Hear Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In our creed, this same thing is expressed in this way, saying, We believe in one God. This truly is a fundamental expression of our faith and belief in the nature of God, that he is neither subordinate nor divided, because he is one. Because God is one and we are made in his image and likeness, we can know for certain that we are being called into unity with him, into this oneness. And while we can boldly confess our belief in there being only one faith, one Lord, and one baptism for all. That is, one God is rightly called Father Almighty, bespeaks of his eternal primacy above all of his household and of his creative work to bring life to where there was no life and to bring life where we see no life. That is to the visible and the invisible. When Jesus comes and he begins, begins speaking of God as his personal father and instructs us to also call God our father um, and to pray to him saying, our father who are in heaven, holy is your name. It should have been clear to his audience that this was a new thing that Jesus was bringing. He's bringing um, not just the Father to us, but rather his personal Father to us, introducing his Father to us as our Father through the Son who is like us in every way but sin. When we are in him, in his body, we too have his personal Father as our personal Father. For in him, we heard nothing that the Father did not give him to say. And we saw no work that the Father did not give him to do. And through himself, Jesus was drawing us into deeper personal relationship with the Father. I know that may seem like a strange way for a family relationship to begin. And, and why couldn't some, some people ask, why couldn't uh, we just meet our Father in person? Why did he have to send his son to intercede or as a mediator? Well, you have to understand that our relationship with our Father had been estranged because of where we are and where he is, because of the original sin. And according to our nature and our physicality, we are just very different in distance from each other. And only the Son could meet us. Only he could meet us where we are and communicate with us in a way that we might understand. And although our Father is different from us, his beloved and begotten Son, Jesus, is like us in every way, but sin, that's intentional. The Father wanted to meet us through him. Therefore, through him, our Father had a way a method to appeal to us. The Divine Father, um, this Divine Father in, in some relationship is something that we all should be able to understand on just the basic human level. Right? For example, I know for a fact that from my family members who sometimes um, they remark and say that, you know, you look just like your father, right? I know from certain tendencies I have, my, my, my siblings might remark, you're just like dad, right? In a good or bad way. Or I know that when I look at my daughter, Darielle, I see myself, right? Just, just a, a female and much prettier version of me. But she looks just like me, right? So I get what it means to see one person in another. Yet for Philip, it didn't seem to click at first. When we turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 8, it says, Philip said to him, Lord, show us, um, show us the Father, and we shall be satisfied. And Jesus said to him, 
have I've been with you for so long that you do not know me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say so is the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. He says, but the Father who dwells in me does the, his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Now, for the Jews, their understanding of God as Father simply meant that he was the O-created, the first, the transcendent, the author, the authority, the creator, the holder of all. In paragraphs 238 of Catholic Catechism, they explain that God was thought to be Father because of the covenant and the gift of the law to Israel, the, the firstborn son. God is also thought to be Father in a parental sense. He is the Father of the King of Israel and the Father to the poor, the orphan, and the widow. Yet the idea that that um, that the Father has a personal Son who is like Him in every way. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, is a theology that cannot be reconciled with the limits <clears throat> that the Jews have placed upon their revelation of God. That's why Jews struggle today. That's why Philip struggled, okay? So in, in, in the Christian context of the divine economy, we find that implied in the term father is the idea of there being a we, a language that we first heard at man's creation when it was spoken let us make man in our image. Moreover, implied we is implied in, in the term we is that because a, a father um, has to have children or, or something he authored because you know, one is not truly a father. I mean, one cannot be a father of no one or no thing. Implied in the term ton, son is that the son has a father, an author, a source of him being a son. Implied in the term advocate, which Jesus calls the Holy Spirit, is implied that he was sent on behalf of someone who he's advocating for, okay? And also implied in these three terms together is that none of them are the same as each other. As paragraphs 252 through 255 of the Catechism states, the words substance, nature, or essence are the closest words we have to communicate how it is that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are truly equal in divinity, yet being equal in nature, they are truly distinct persons and they also have distinct relationships. The Council of Toledo in 685 AD stated it in this way. It says, the Father is that which the Son is. The Son that which the Father is. The Father and the Son that which the Holy Spirit is. That is, they truly do share one nature. Now, all analogies um, eventually about the Holy Trinity eventually fall apart, but beg me for a moment to make one here. To explain the one nature of the Triune God, it would be like looking at um, their DNA and to see the exact same molecules, And but in the Son's DNA, we can see traces of the Father. And in the Holy Spirit's DNA, we can see traces of the Father and the Son. But in the Father's DNA, we cannot see any traces of anyone else's DNA because He is alone, because He is the Alpha, the First. More than that, even though the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all appear to be ontologically and anatomically identical, they are truly distinct persons who do um, who are not the other person, and their relationship with each other is unique to the other, and they are not co-equal brothers, right? They are truly 
Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, yet, although they are truly distinct from each other because they truly are of the same substance, they are not divided in any substantive way. They are truly distinct from each other, but not divided from each other, and are unable and um, they're unable to be divided or at odds with each other. We can't pit one against the each other each other because of their same divine substance, nature, and essence. For this reason, we would not be in error um, if we were to say that divine love is a name of the nature, substance, or essence of God. For First uh, John um, chapter four verse eight says, "God is love." And it is because of this divine unity and love that we can rightly call them the Holy Trinity, because they truly are three, but they are truly one. Now, having discussed the core truths of this first section in Crete, let us turn as we close to speak about the Creed in context of the liturgy, of the Holy Mass. In the liturgy, there are only two things that we do. All right, We're either praying or we're confessing. That's it. That is, we are either praying the words of the liturgy or we are confessing them. And in this liturgical rhythm of prayer and confession, the creed offers the final opportunity in the second movement of the liturgy, which is the liturgy of the word, to confess our belief in the triune God. Therefore, this positioning in the liturgy gives our creed the taste of it being something of a summation of the readings and as a type of preface to the third movement, the Liturgy of the Holy Eucharist. Indeed, all confessions um, found in the Creed sum of what God has revealed about himself. They, they, they're a summation of what God has revealed about himself and about his, his work to fulfill in us that desire of Eve, to be like God. Also, the Creed in treating the nature of God addresses and points to the central theme of the Liturgy of the Mass, that is, the work of deification, that is, becoming like God. Therefore, when we confess the creed, we are confessing our belief in the divine nature of God and his work to conform us to that nature through our Lord Jesus Christ. All right. And the next talk, I will be talking about the second part of the Nicene Constantinople Creed, beginning with the profession, we believe in one Lord. Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. Thank you for watching.